Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, <clears throat> will you turn with me to <clears throat> Psalms 126, 7 and 8. Those are printed for you there on page 10 in your bulletin. All three of these are songs of ascent. And Psalm 127 is a song of Solomon. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children, our heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's move by your spirit. And Lord, we pray now as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So as you're probably familiar with by now in this series, in the, uh, in the calendar, the annual calendar of ancient Israel, there was a major inconvenience. And that inconvenience was that three times a year, <clears throat> these people had to leave their personal affairs, which were busy, like ours, and they had to go up to God's house in the royal city of Jerusalem. You know, that's where God put the ark that represented his presence. And they had to go up there to God's house from their houses. And the point of these journeys was not to give them like three times a year of vacation. The point of these journeys was for something on those journeys to happen in their hearts, in their souls. That as they walked toward God's house three times a year, there would be formed in them this very deep conviction that life back home, our whole life, and in fact, it's not just our personal lives, our whole existence as a people, because we're going with a bunch of other pilgrims, we're all part of the, you know, this group called Israel. This whole thing is God's gift. It is God's doing. These were pilgrimages that were intended to strengthen what the Bible calls faith, awareness of God, confidence in God. And that is why we are still today, in 2023, we are interested still in this songbook that they used on the road. So these 15 songs of going up, songs of ascent, uh, were sung on those journeys to Jerusalem. And they, the songs themselves are a kind of journey of the heart, a kind of journey of the soul 
And we can use it today too. We can use these songs to lift up our hearts from the earthly things that we're very concerned about and to you know, just sort of turn ourselves in our hearts toward the one who is the, the giver of every good gift, right? God, our Father in heaven. Now at the risk of geeking a bit, which I'm sometimes tempted to do very much, I'd like you to look at the bottom of page 10 in your bulletin and notice something. I know this is the kind of thing some of you might instantly want to fall asleep like I'm back in literature class in high school, but just bear with me a second. I'd like you to notice something about the structure of these 15 songs. You'll notice they are kind of structured in two different ways. One way is you can just walk from beginning to end, a straight line, and that makes sense because they are intended to be a journey. You can begin in Psalm 120 and you can walk straight as a string uh, to Psalm 134, and when you begin in Psalm 120, we are way out far away from God. We are out among these heathen tribes, these faraway peoples in Meshech up to the north and Kedar down in the south, and they don't love God, they don't worship God. Their lives are full of lies and deception. They practice war. It's not fun out here for God's people, and you walk all the way to Psalm 134, and by the time you get there, we have this beautiful kind of quiet evening in the house of God. That's one way to structure them. But because these are songs for going up a mountain, actual mountain on which Jerusalem is built, you'll notice there's also a, a, a wave structure. This is a structure we see quite often in, in the Hebrew scriptures. This is a sandwich structure where the outer layers of the sandwich kind of parallel each other. So if you look closely, you'll notice that Psalm 120 and Psalm 134 have parallels. And then Psalm 121 and 133 have parallels. And there are exactly two Psalms of David on the one side and exactly two Psalms of David on the other. So it's kind of a sandwich or a menorah, if you want to think of it that way. And you reach eventually the very center of the, of, the, of the songbook, and it is Psalm 127. That is the peak of the wave, the only one of the songs written by Solomon, unless the Lord builds the house. Keep that in mind as we go. Now, today we're gonna to talk about the three middle Psalms, 126, seven, and eight. And just before we get to that peak, that peak Psalm, which is about God building this house and this city, toward which the pilgrims are walking. Before we get quite there, in one, Psalm 126, we get a breath of very refreshing honesty about the challenge that every pilgrim faces as he or she walks in this world by faith. I wanna talk in Psalm 126 about why faith is hard. Why faith is hard. Now when you open Psalm 126, it doesn't sound like these people's faith is under stress at all. In fact, the opening mood of this song is just about delirious joy. Like, we were, thought we were dreaming it was so good. But if you look in verses one through three at why they are joyful, this almost has to be describing Israel's return to the land after exile. God has restored the fortunes of this city that the Babylonians destroyed. And in fact, it's such incredible, it's so incredible this turning of their fortunes that the nations also are looking at them saying, wow, their God did some amazing things for them. It almost has to be the return after exile. This is probably the last of the 15 songs to be written in history, chronologically. And if you think about that then, they are joyful because they are coming home after exile. You realize immediately the mood here is not straightforward. The mood is not straightforward. This is the perennial challenge of faith, and you can see it in the exile, the return after the exile. This is the challenge every one of us faces in our faith. Here it is. With everything that God has done, 
there is still so much more to do. That's why faith is hard. Because for all that God has done, there is still so much more to do. Now let's just step back for a quick sec. You guys know that Israel, Abraham's family, this people exists because God has a plan to literally save the world. That is, God has a plan, right? He is going to fix the ruin that Father Adam plunged all of us into when he decided to listen to God's enemy, the serpent, and rebel against God, the high king, the maker of heaven and earth. That just plunged our whole human race into an utter mess, and God has a plan to fix that. That's why Abraham's family exists. And biblical faith, what the Bible calls faith, just is believing that God is working his plan. Like, that just is what faith is. It's believing God has a plan, God is working his plan to save us from the ruin that Adam plunged us all into, and we are, you know, making plenty of messes ourselves by our sin. We believe God is working his plan. And so, you know, people outside the faith, right, they have all kinds of ideas. You could go out in the street and interview people today, this afternoon. You could, people would have all kinds of ideas about what they need, what the world needs. And if you listen to them long enough, what you'd find is their solution to all those needs is us in the end. We humans have to solve our problem. There are things we can do, there are things we cannot do, there are ways we can adapt to conditions, but we are ultimately the resource for solving all these needs that we have and the world has. We need more politics, more money, more what, you know, whatever it is. Faith, by contrast, recognizes that there are a lot of things we human beings can do in this world, but what we need individually and what the world needs as a whole, most basically, is something only God can do. And he's going to do it. And he has, in fact, done so much. He has done great things. I mean, Psalm 124, we, last week, God has taken Israel's side again and again against utterly impossible odds. God has a plan. He's working his plan. And there's a lot of history. You know, we, there's a lot of water under the bridge. We've got a great story. Our help is in the name of the Lord, and he has proven himself in our story. That is all true. But the challenge remains that despite everything God has done, there is so much more you guys are living this right now. There is so much more that needs to happen. You think about the exile, the post-exile context. They're back home. The problem in Israel is that Israel can't get out of their own way. They're so much like Adam. Like Adam's whole problem was he didn't listen to God. He didn't trust God. He didn't obey him. Well, neither does Israel. That's why they got thrown out of the land. And, you know, that's just in Israel, let alone that you look around at the pagan powers of the time, the Gentile powers, these mighty nations that have enslaved Israel, they don't have the slightest interest in worshiping Israel's God. That's the actual situation on the ground. And so there is this astonishing reversal that should be celebrated. But they're home now in a situation, as you'll notice in verse 4, they're home now in a situation that is in desperate need of prayer. You guys often say those words of that father who met Jesus and his child was so sick and he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, that's kind of how this psalm is. Like, our fortunes have been restored, but oh God, please, please. <laughs> Restore our fortunes like water in the Negev, in the desert to Israel's south. They have come home to a city that is in ruins. They have to build it from scratch. They have come home to a temple that has been completely destroyed. That has to be rebuilt from scratch. And as they walk into this empty, broken city, in this empty, you know, there's no temple, there is an absence of God's glory that you can feel. The whole thing in Israel all along has been that God's glory cloud is among us. It is Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel saw that glory cloud leave like 70 years ago, and it's not back. 
and there's just kind of this thundering absence. They are taking their seed, as it were, and they are planting and sowing like they are starting over. And there's this very interesting moment in the book of Ezra when they get back to the city and they lay the foundation, just the foundation of a new temple. And they get everyone together and they're just shouting in celebration that the temple of the Lord's house, that the foundation of the Lord's house has been laid again. But the old people who remember the temple that Solomon built, they're weeping hysterically. And there's this clamor, and it is, it's said that when you're outside the city and you're listening to the, to the tumult in the city, you can't tell where the laughter ends and the weeping begins. It's, that's the situation after the exile. It is true in this situation that their hope is God. You know, those mountains still surround Jerusalem, as we saw last week, and God still surrounds his people. He is their hope. But this present moment after the exile, for all of the joy of it, if you look at their individual lives, you look at the geopolitical situation of that moment, this is like the parched, parched dry, powder dry Negev in the south of Israel. And yet in this desert moment, they've got to sow their seed, they've got to plant. And what I love about that imagery in verses five and six about sowing seed, I love that imagery, and we're gonna see this throughout today, that reminds us of something in the natural world. When you and I plant. Do you know why you can drop little dry dead things in the ground and they grow up into great big living things? The reason why we can do that, we can sow and plant in hope, is because God who made the heavens and the earth has ordained and he sustains seed time and harvest. God has decided there's going to be seed time and harvest. God made that. We didn't make that and God keeps that running. We don't keep that going. That's God's work and because God has created and sustains seed time and harvest. You can drop dead little things in the ground and they, in, in six months you can have a harvest. That we can work, even weeping we can sow because God is already working. Now that's what the next two songs are about. So Psalm 126 is why faith is hard. Psalm 127 is where faith is focused. So why faith is hard, but now notice where faith is focused. Because in Psalm 127 we arrive at the peak the very center of the songbook. Now what's interesting here is that this psalm flashes us back quite some time ago to a much earlier moment in Israel's story and it's a really glorious moment and it's the moment when King Solomon who wrote this song, these are his lyrics, there was a time when Solomon put the capstone on the first temple that was ever built for God in Jerusalem. This edifice was stunning. In its massiveness and in its beauty, it was stunning. And the thing about it is, when, when Solomon puts that capstone on this glorious house for God, that temple in Jerusalem is surrounded by a city, and if you go outside the city, it's surrounded by a whole land, a whole kingdom that is world-renowned for its wealth there's a description of Solomon's kingdom. It was so stupidly rich in that kingdom that silver was not even considered a precious metal. Solomon had so much, brought so much gold and silver to, to, to the land of Israel and into the royal city, like they just used silver like, I don't know, like tin. It was, war, his wealth was world renowned. What his servants ate every day like made news. And, and, and Solomon was the embodiment of wisdom. 
you know, can you imagine having wise rulers? Uh, you know, like the last 10 years in America, right? Like, we're just like, please, any wisdom, anywhere. Give me a ruler. Solomon was like, people would come from far away nations just to sit and listen to him talk. He was so wise. And there was peace. Israel had no enemies. They were all either subdued or they were friends. This is the closest kingdom to paradise since Eden. And Solomon is the king over all of this. And at the peak of his power and his glory, as he's laying this capstone of God's house in the city, he has, Solomon has the power and the glory that Adam tried to grab by rebelling against the high king. Solomon has it. In that moment of his power and his glory, he writes, this, that he writes these lyrics that really boil down to this very simple and glorious reality. The Lord builds this house. The Lord keeps this city. Well, no, Solomon, you built the house. No, you don't understand. Unless the Lord builds this house, it doesn't get built. The Lord builds his house. It is his house. He builds it. The Lord keeps his city. This is his city. This is his house. This is his kingdom. This is his doing. And you can't, you can't but hear the contrast with a much later pompous king in Babylon who walked on the roof of his house one day looking out at the grandeur of Babylon and he prayed this to himself. He said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's a few hours before God strikes that king with madness and he spends the next while eating grass in the field like an ox. And Solomon is the exact opposite. He looks around at this temple and this city and this kingdom full of wisdom and peace and wealth, and he says, this is the Lord's kingdom, and he is building it. That's what the exiles will need to hear much later, as they are now sowing in tears. And that's important because a lot of times when people read Psalm 127, I've done this, we read, the Lord, unless the Lord builds a house, and we immediately jump to our houses. Right, there's stuff in my life that I'm trying to build. And it's very easy, you know, my thing that I really am trying to build in my life, whatever it is, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, man, you know, it's not gonna happen. And so we kind of like bring God in as kind of, you know, maybe he'll come and he'll, he'll help us build what we want built. And there might be some truth in that. But this psalm is talking about God building what he wants built. And what he wants built is his house. Unless the Lord builds the house, <laughs> the temple of God on earth, unless the Lord watches over his city where he rules and from which he rules the nations. That's the picture of Zion in scripture. The house of God, the city of God, these represent, they symbolize God's kingdom on the earth. Unless the Lord builds his kingdom, it will not get built. That then tells us that in verse three, Behold, in the Hebrew, it's not a generic word for children. It's actually the Hebrew word banim, sons. Behold, sons are a heritage from the Lord. And it's almost certain that these are the royal sons of David's line. Because God rules in this city where he has this now temple, he rules in this city and indeed intends to extend his rule over the nations through a particular dynasty that he set up in this city and that is David's dynasty. And so these are almost certainly 
sons are the Lord's heritage. They're the sons of David that God gave to him. The fruit of the womb is God's reward. They are arrows in the hand of a warrior. David was a warrior king. And a particularly the son who is God's gift would be Solomon, who not only, talk about David's line being able to speak with the enemies of Israel in the gate of Jerusalem. Solomon not only subdued all of Israel's enemies, but he confounded kings and queens and sages from all around the world by his wisdom. I mean, there is no shame in the gate because this king sits on David's throne. And Solomon looks around, he says, whether you're looking at the temple, whether you're looking at the city, whether you're looking at the dynastic line of David, this, this kingdom thing is the Lord's doing. And that echoes down through the centuries all the way down to when God will lay the cornerstone of a much greater house. This house will be a worldwide house, and that cornerstone of that house will be David's greatest son. Listen to the echoes of Psalm 127. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, unless the Lord builds the house. Zacharias, the father of John the baptizer, prays this when his baby boy is born. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, unless the Lord builds the house. And Paul, the apostle Paul, says to the church, composed of living stones that God is building together into a house for God, he dwells in our midst. He says, I planted Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You are God's field. You are God's building. And brothers and sisters, that is the focus of faith. This is where faith is focused. We understand that what we need in our lives, ultimately what the world needs, God has given. He has given his life-giving rule. We wanted to be in rebellion against him with all the ruin and death that brings. God has lovingly, graciously imposed from heaven his life-giving rule through David's greatest son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God is, as only he can, he is gathering around the Messiah, around David's greatest son. He's gathering these restored lives. The Bible calls them living stones around Jesus, and he's building them into a dwelling place for God. And that kingdom, which God alone can build and God is building, that is what faith prays for. When you're up against stony hearts, your own stony heart, the stony hearts of others, and you realize, what can take away unbelief? What can take away enmity in a human heart? God. <laughs> God builds his house. When you're up against broken relationships, whether they're kind of on a micro level or whole society's broken apart. Who can, who can change that by his gracious power? Only God can. The Lord must build his house. When you're surrounded in your life by just grievous miseries, things that you just realize, it just feels like you're being swept along by a, a kind of like tsunami of, of just situational stuff and it's just hard and it's painful and it seems unrelenting and you're crying out for relief. Who are you crying to? God who builds his house. You are under his care. He must do it. Everywhere in this world that we see the fruit of Adam's sin and our sin, everywhere we find death and ruin, everywhere our hearts cry out as we're going to sing at the end today, reign, mighty God, assert your cause. 
That's where God alone can do what only God can do as the king. And unless God builds this kingdom, unless God builds this house on the cornerstone of his son by the power of his spirit, the reality is nobody can do it. It is God's kingdom to build. He has built it. He will build it. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen? That brings us to the real paradox, though, of life in God's kingdom. Unless the Lord builds the house, he can stay up all night in vain. And Solomon goes on to point out in verse 2, it is actually this conviction I've been describing that God is building his kingdom in this world. God is extending his life-giving rule in this world, and only God can do that. There is no help, no hope and no help in any other. That conviction that it's all of the Lord is what fuels, brothers and sisters, our work for God's kingdom. Right? That's what enables us to work and work well. What, what Solomon says in verse 2 is that God's children work from rest. It's vain to overwork. It's vain to keep pushing as if you're God. You need to work. You need to get up. You need to go to bed. You need, you know, you need to sometimes, you know, burn the candle a little bit at both ends. There is such a thing as toil. But we, as those who know God is building his kingdom, we are always working from, whether it's rising up or staying up, we are working from rest. Because if you don't rest in God, if your heart is not quiet in the Lord that he is building his kingdom and only he can and he will and nothing can stop it, then what's gonna happen is, and I get, there, I get here a lot, your, your work in this world on the various sins and miseries you encounter, maybe it's your own sins and miseries, maybe it's sins and miseries in the life of people that you love, your work in those situations is going to start coming out of a sleepless heart. The Bible also calls it an unbelieving heart. And you're going to find yourself striving desperately rather than stewarding peacefully. It is because Israel's keeper, that watcher on the walls of Zion, he never sleeps because he's God. That's why we can receive and enjoy, in verse 2, the gift of rest, the gift of sleep, the gift of being able to accept our limits even as we give God our strength. Does God want our strength? Of course he does, but he, does, he wants us to give him our strength with the recognition, I'm not God. I've accepted my limits. He builds the house. He keeps the city. God does not need you. He does not need me. And you and I cannot even begin to do what only God can do. And that, I think, is the point of connection with the next psalm and the last. Because in Psalm 128, the focus turns from this city and this house that God builds and God keeps, the kingdom of God symbolized in that city. And it turns, the pilgrims, it's like they look back and they look now at their faraway homes as individual pilgrims, like those little micro kingdoms, we left those behind to come here to the city and we've been looking at this thing that God is building, God builds his kingdom and now we're looking back and we're thinking about our life back home. And so Psalm 128 is how faith is lived. Why faith is hard? where faith is focused, but lastly, how faith is lived. And notice this shift here as they look kind of back home. <clears throat> because the point of going to Jerusalem is to go home, but with renewed faith. So you've been here, you've seen what God is building 
as only he can. Reminded that God is the king. But the point of that is to go home. And, and this song now pictures what God's people can go build back home because their faith is resting in what God is building. So we're gonna go home and build now because we know God is building. And what do you see as you look at the person here in Psalm 128? This happy person. Asher will like this, the, the, the Hebrew word for blessed is happy, and it's the Hebrew word uh, the, the, uh, asher, right? It's asher, the, 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 the joyful, happy, blessed. Well, the first thing you see about, the foremost thing you see about this person, this man, is that he fears the Lord. And in the Bible, it's very important to remember that in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is not being terrified of God. The fear of the Lord is totally trusting him. The first time the fear of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible is right after Abraham raises a knife over his son to slay him, and the angel says, stop, and God speaks, and he says, Abraham, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you trust me enough to give me your son. You'll lay it all on the line with me because you trust me. That's the fear of the Lord. This man fears the Lord, and what I'd like you to notice, this man who fears the Lord, who knows the God, the king, who keeps Israel, this fear of the Lord, this total confidence in God, produces in this man a very striking, we call it today, work-life balance. <laughs> because he clearly works, and he clearly works hard. We're told in verse 2 that there is labor of his hands that he has done. But why does a man who fears, listen to me guys, why does a man who fears the Lord labor hard? Why does he work hard? Because he knows that God will provide. Right, like if you know God is the king, the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's my father, and he loves me for Jesus' sake. He, he's made me his child through Christ. He's taken my sin away. He's given me the righteousness of Jesus. He has adopted me into his family. I'm gonna inherit his kingdom. That's my future. And you go into your life every day. Do you think that that makes you work less hard or more hard? Is it, does that sort of like sap your energy or energize you? Of course, you're like, I can do my day because God is my father. The fear of the Lord makes you plow and plant in hope. But it's interesting. He's, he's not just like the workaholics you find who don't know that God is their father because the thing that we notice about him, and I actually think John Calvin's got the translation right. If I were you, I would write in your Bible that verse two should actually be translated, when you eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, you'll be happy. When you eat the fruit of your labor, you'll be blessed. Because it's, it's, the idea is you're going to eat the fruit of your labor, but you are going to be the kind of person who can enjoy it. You're going to be the kind of person who can be happy and experience well-being as you eat the fruit of your labor. Beloved, that is not a given. Now, Calvin points this out, and we watch this all the time in our world right now. You watch people, they have worked, they have earned, they get what they're after, and they're not happy. But if you fear the Lord, you can stop and you can savor what the Lord has given to you because the Lord has given it to you. The fear of the Lord enables you to recognize it as a gift. And that is what the world should see in God's children who believe God is building his kingdom. He is building his house. He is keeping his city. What that should produce on the ground is we should work like people who know God will provide. We should work even more zealously because we know God is working. Paul says, the grace of God was not given to me in vain. I worked harder than all of y'all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was given to me. And we would, should, the world should see not only that we work energetically because God loves us. It should see that we enjoy 
what God has given to us because we know he has given it to us. There should be such celebration of God's gifts because we know the giver. And there's something else I'd like you to notice. This man fears the Lord and it makes him work and enjoy a certain way. But you'll also notice that because he fears the Lord in verse one, he walks in God's ways. Another way of saying that, a little bit clumsy perhaps, is that he walks like God walks. He, he, he puts on his father's shoes and he walks like God walks. And that shows up in verse three in his closest relationships. Because as this man knows God cares for him, that's the fear of the Lord, so he cares for others. That's walking in God's way. And his wife and his children and other texts in the Bible will add, and his servants, and even his beasts, and his friends, and his neighbors, and the city in which he lives, but especially you notice here, his wife and his children, they manifest the kind of growth and strength and vitality that come from being well-loved. This wife is like Stephen's vines at harvest time, just overflowing with fruit. These children are sturdy young olive plants. They are maturing. They are doing well. They are strong. They have joy because they're well-loved by this man. Because those who know that they are loved by God make the best lovers. And his home life shows it. His closest relations show it. Joseph Pieper, the German philosopher, describes the drive of a Christian. That, that, that thing in us that's driven as a Christian. He describes our drive as simultaneously relaxed and disciplined. I love that description. When you see a driven Christian, fears the Lord, walks in his ways, what you're gonna see is someone who is simultaneously relaxed and disciplined. And that's this man. It, you know, don't get lost in the fact that it's a man. You know, it, it's a picture. It could be any human being who loves and fears the Lord. This person, this man, he is active, he is invested, he is disciplined, he cares, <laughs> he sows, he risks, he attempts, he cultivates, He's going after his life. By God's blessing, he even accomplishes quite a lot. But why does he do that? Because his soul is relaxed in the goodness and the sovereignty and the faithfulness of his great king. This is a man who is using his powers with no anxiety and no pride. The life that he is building is possible only, and he knows it, it's possible only, verse 5, because God's kingly benediction is reaching all the way to where he lives from Zion. May the Lord bless you, give you his shalom from Zion where he rules. So I'm going to ask you guys as we wrap up, what has God given you to build? What's God given you to build? Or maybe because we are living in very dark times, we will not build very much. Maybe God has just called us to keep some things until things can grow fair and bear fruit again in better days to come. It is not unusual that God's people do not see what he was building in their lifetime. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a particular moment in the Battle of, Gon, uh, 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 of Gondor uh, in the White City when Gandalf, the, white, the, the wizard, he is talking with Denethor, the steward of the city. And they're talking about the return of the king. And I guess Denethor kind of questions, he uses the word unless, you know, the king 
should come. And Gandalf's response, I think, is a word for our times. He says, unless the king should come again, unless the king should come again, well, my Lord Steward, it is your task to keep some kingdom still against that event which few now look to see. In that task, you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for. But I'll say this, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward. Did you not know? And you are stewards. Did you not know? And Christ is risen. Christ is reigning. Christ is returning. And therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. For this we thank you, our great King. In Jesus' good name, amen.